Welcome everyone to Crime Spot. Hi there, my name is Felix and together with my colleague Esther, we host this podcast to discuss trends and phenomena of organized crime and to explore how organized crime intersects with our lives and societies. In this episode, we're going to discuss the phenomenon of falsified medical products. And I'm really happy to say that we have an outstanding expert here today to talk about one case of falsified medical products that he was involved in investigating and prosecuting. And this expert is Hugo Bonar. Hugo is an, as I said, expert in combating substandard and falsified medical products for already over 20 years. He was the head of enforcement at the Irish Health Product Regulator, HPRA. And HPRA stands for uh, Health Products Regulatory Authority. And yeah, Hugo is an outstanding expert on the topic. He's a firm advocate of intelligence-led investigations. Over the course of his career, he has been involved in drafting of several documents on the topic, spanning publications, technical tools, and convention. He's actually a former army officer and qualified as a lawyer as well. He holds degrees in law, public administration, and a master's in forensic psychology and criminal investigation. He has been on board of several management boards, and we would, could not think of a better expert to have here with us today. For more information, make sure to check the notes, the show notes of this episode. But without further ado, let's get into it. Hugo, thank you so much for taking time. Welcome to CrimeSpot. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Perhaps for to, to get started, you could walk us a bit through your role at HPRA and also explain a bit your responsibilities. The HPRA is the regulator in Ireland for the quality, safety and efficacy of medical products in Ireland and for all those medicines that are produced in Ireland for markets abroad. It is also responsible for the enforcement of the law relating to the falsification of medical products the illegal diversion of and other related intentional behaviours. It has a dedicated enforcement section embedded within the HPRA to specific, specifically enable intelligence-led investigations and prosecutions of offences of falsified medical products and other related crimes involving threats to public health. My part in this is that I was the head of the enforcement service within the HPRA. So Hugo, before we get too much into this case, um, for those out there that perhaps aren't so familiar with um, the different types of uh, uh, medical products that you can have out there and their different forms of the different forms of control that exist, perhaps you could explain what is falsified medical products or what are, pardon me, falsified medical products and how do they uh, d uh, differ from substandard medical products, um, for example. Yeah, there, there had been quite a bit of confusion in, in years gone past. Most of that has now been resolved. And it separates what is the counterfeit medical product, which would be intellectual property issues, and what is now referred to as a falsified medical product, uh, which takes into consideration the health aspect, the public health aspect, uh, when you have uh, falsified uh, a medical product. And a medical product, of course, is a term that's used to include medicines, medical devices, the active substances, parts and materials, and so on. 
The law uh, in Ireland, and it's very similar elsewhere, uh, where um, defines the term falsified medical product to be a misrepresentation of its identity, source, and history. Now, identity includes not just the product name, but also includes the packaging and labeling, its composition regarding the ingredients, including the strength of the ingredients and its excipients. The source includes the manufacturer, the country of manufacturing, the country of origin, and its marketing authorization holder. The history includes the records and documents relating to the distribution channels used. This is an intentional offence and does not include unintentional quality defects and does not include intellectual property rights. So this definition, which in Ireland implements the European Union's Fortified Medicines Directive, is broadly the same as that provided by the UNODC Guide to Good Legislative Practice in Fortified Medical Products, and which follows the World Health Organization's definition, and also is uh, approximately the same as the Council of Europe's Medicrime Convention. That's a convention on counterfeit medical products and similar crimes involving threats to public health. So we should all be having a similar sense of what we mean by an offence concerning a falsified medical product. Super. And we're going to make sure for our listeners to link all of the sources and references that you just mentioned in the show notes. And perhaps now we can dive into the actual case a bit more. And you could start by, well, by essentially telling us what happened and how you got involved in it in the first place and how the case started. Yeah. The initial report of the falsified cancer indicated medicine came from the Ministry of Health in Israel to the HPRA. And it requested assistance relating to documentation it had detained during its investigation uh, into a falsified medicine for the treatment of cancer that had been supplied, uh, as they thought, by an Irish wholesaler and had been consigned from an Asian country. Around the same time, a further report was received by the HPRA uh, from the Swiss therapeutic product regulator, Swiss Medic, about the same product supplied by the Israeli uh, wholesaler to the wholesale company in Switzerland. The HPRA immediately opened an investigation into the Irish wholesale entity, which we'll call TAP, and that was suspected of false, uh, supplying the falsified medicine. Search warrants were executed by HPRA, and computer equipment was seized by the HPRA from the offices and homes uh, relating to the TAP. On the forensic analysis by the HPRA, much of the evidence that grounded the uh, prosecution was actually found. Um, just to clarify, does that mean that the falsified medical products in questions were did not contain active ingredients, or no, the, were the, the the falsification in this case arose mainly from misrepresentation as to the identity of the product? Uh, and the history and the source. So mostly what we're talking about here is the falsification of documentation relating to the uh, medicines. Uh, the source of the medicines, they did not come from Ireland. They were labeled as coming from Ireland. The documentation said they came from Ireland. Uh, the um, certificate analysis were uh, falsified. Uh, and we were not able to find the actual manufacturer of the medicine. We know who the manufacturer claimed to be. It is another company in the South Asian uh, country, and we refer to that as uh, TP. And TP and TAP had a relationship where TAP in Ireland effectively 
worked as a marketing company for TP in Asia to uh, market the TP's uh, products to sell into countries outside of the EU because they couldn't have been placed on the market in the EU. During some civil litigation in which is the South Asian country, it was discovered uh, by the High Court that um, the listed manufacturing sites could not be found. So there's a real concern here as to who was actually manufacturing this product, what was the quality of it, and so therefore we could not actually ascertain whether this, uh, what, how, what the provenance of this product was. And all of the documentation uh, clearly was falsified, so this was uh, listed as a falsified medical product. So Hugo, thanks so much for that. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around this case because I feel like it has so many different components and so many different actors, um, which makes it so relevant um, for uh, to understand and to promote best practices in international criminal justice cooperation, but also makes it so complex. So just so I'm, I'm clear, so it's this case um, was started because uh, someone in Israel complained to the national authorities in Israel that there was a case of a falsified medical product. Then Israel complained to Ireland, and it was found that in Ireland, medical products, falsified medical products that were being manufactured in India were being relabeled as being manufactured in Ireland and then redistributed. Uh, is is that correct, or um, am I a bit off, off track? The investigation was actually led from Ireland because we seem to be the only um, people who are investigating, uh, while others did investigate from their own aspects. A lot of the documentation and the marketing was centered on a wholesale company in Ireland. And therefore, we took up this investigation. It was within our jurisdiction, and we had a responsibility, and we discharged that responsibility to the fullest by investigating and prosecuting uh, within Ireland. Now, TAP was authorised by the HPRA as a wholesale uh, medicines uh, entity, uh, but the investigation that took uh, place revealed the true operational strategy of the company. And it effectively operated as a marketing company for that uh, Asian company, TP, and that claimed to actually manufacture the medicines. The actual manufacturing site could not be confirmed. The strategy for TAP to arrange sales mostly to non-European uh, countries and that the product would be shipped directly from Asia to the purchaser with documentation claiming that it had originated in Ireland. That documentation was the documentation of TAP who had falsified the documentation. There was a further company uh, which we refer to as TPUK, uh, and it really only existed on paper. The company directors were listed as two of the directors of TAP from Ireland and the others from TP in Asia. Uh, TPUK purported to be to have manufactured the cancer medicines in the UK on behalf of TAP in Ireland. While TAUK was actually a legal entity, did not actually manufacture or trade in anything. And it actually used the address of another English pharmaceutical company, a legitimate one, without that company's permission. So we have a web of deceit uh, involved here, uh, and that involved 
TAP in Ireland. And uh, Jürgen, could you, sorry for me jumping in, could you perhaps outline what, what is exactly the issue in, in that particular case with falsified medical products um, in terms of for what, what are the risks for the consumers? The risk for the consumers is that they have no idea of what they're actually consuming. When you uh, buy a medicine or when a medicine is prescribed by a medical practitioner for a patient, uh, whether in the public health system or the private system, you consume that medicine with the belief that it is exactly what it's supposed to be. So there's a, an unwritten guarantee for that medicine that you will not get sick. In fact, the guarantee is that it will make you better. It will prevent something or it will treat something that you have some ailment. If you have no idea as to what the quality of the product is, you can have no guarantee that it will actually help you. In some cases, it may actually harm you. And the conditions in which a medicine is made is very highly regulated to ensure that the quality of the product, and we're not talking about how it looks, we're talking about the integrity of the product, is actually up to the job that it's supposed to do. So there's a very tight range of quality standards that is imposed upon medicines to ensure that they actually are effective and to ensure that they're safe, that they will do you, do you no harm. If we don't actually regulate those medicines, if we can't assess them, then uh, we can give no guarantees and the people who consume them kind of have no confidence in the public health system that it's actually keeping them safe. And I guess that especially in, in this particular case where it concerned oncology medicine, this can be particularly harmful. Um, so as you were investigating this case, perhaps you could describe a bit the charges that you were bringing forward and perhaps also the different points that you had to prove in front of court. The breaches were breaches under the Irish Medicine Sport Act. This is the statute that governed medical products going on the market in Ireland or even for governing manufacturers in Ireland who make them for countries abroad. So the, this act actually provides not just all of the quality standards and the regulatory standards, it actually also provides the enforcement powers and the prosecution powers for the HPRA in the event of a breach. So this is a very strong uh, statute given to the regulator. The HPRA had to prove that the medicines were falsified in the first instance, and that TAP and its directors, which were the only natural legal persons within our jurisdiction, that they had knowingly falsified documentation in relation to the country of origin of the medicines, in relation to the actual manufacturer, in relation to the labeling, in relation to marketing authorization holders, and that they were directly complicit in the falsification of certificates of analysis of those medicines and records of distribution channel. This also included the money trail for the payments involving TAP and TP. In short, we had to prove all the elements of the definition of a falsified uh, medicine regarding the identity, source and history in, release, in relation to each of the cancer medications involved and in relation to the intentional acts of each of the persons prosecuted. The evidence before the court was sufficient to show that the two named directors of TAP uh, and TAP as a legal entity had committed the offences for which they were prosecuted. Now, when I say two directors, one of them was a listed director 
and the other one was not a listed director but held himself out to be the chairman of the board and the chief executive. So in effect, he was a shadow director and that is how he was dealt with under the law. And um, perhaps before we we get to uh, the the verdict and the the sentencing, uh, perhaps you you could highlight to what extent international cooperation played a key role here in um, the successful uh, prosecution of this case, or rather, to build a strong case uh, for for prosecution. Um, and I know you also mentioned interagency cooperation. So how did that come into play uh, to to solve this case? This case could not have been fully investigated or even brought to uh, prosecution stage without the cooperation of uh, other countries. And we got uh, much of this. While the investigation itself actually involved a lot more countries, we didn't get cooperation or even responses from some countries. But in six countries in particular, they provided evidence to us and uh, cooperated fully. There were three continents involved in this investigation and uh, witnesses uh, from a number of countries uh, were coming to Ireland for the purpose of giving evidence in this particular case. So international cooperation was essential. If it didn't happen, this case could not have been prosecuted because the evidence that uh, was collected in Ireland was gathered here, uh, forensic evidence, uh, uh, both from computers and from chemical analysis, that was possible only to a certain extent. We actually needed the uh, equivalent type of evidence from other countries so this case could be joined up to show the real threat and the criminality involved. This sounds like a really complex case and, and incredible to hear that uh, international cooperation across three continents worked. So perhaps you could elaborate a bit on how does this, uh, did this end for the perpetrators? Uh, in the end, we prosecuted the two directors and the uh, legal entity, TAP, uh, in the Irish courts. Uh, when the case bef came before the court in June of 2018, the overwhelming amount of evidence resulted in the two directors and the company pleading guilty. Uh, in convicting the accused, uh, the court imposed a fine of €1,000 each on the two directors and it explained its rationale for that type of uh, penalty by taking into consideration both aggravating and mitigating factors. The aggravating factors taken into consideration were that one of the accused, the company chairman, the shadow director, was a health professional, and the other director was a legal professional who had uh, only a few years previously ceased legal practice for the purpose of engaging in the wholesale of medicines with TAP. The medicines involved in the prosecution were indicated for the treatment of cancers, which the court took to be a very serious issue. The offending behaviour posed a serious threat to public health and the well-being of patients. And the court considered that the offences were serious and complex to investigate and to, and to prosecute. It also took into consideration several mitigating circumstances. And these were that the three accused pleaded guilty and that avoided a lengthy trial. They showed remorse in their actions and they had no previous convictions. The court felt that there was a very low likelihood that they would ever re-offend. 
Both the directors committed before the court not to engage in the activity involving medical products regulated by the HBRA in the future. Uh, the company ceased trading and would be wound up. Uh, the court considered that there was a loss of professional standing within the community for both directors being professional people. And there was no evidence that any actual person had been injured as a result of the consumption of the offending. That last point is rather regrettable in a way in that uh, finding victims of falsified medicines and falsified medical devices is extremely difficult. Because normally when people uh, suffer an injury and sometimes death from them, it is very difficult for uh, to find out that was this was the cause. Generally, their um, findings on post-mortem would actually indicate that they died of an underlying condition, not that they actually died because the underlying condition wasn't properly treated by falsified medicine. And it's only when a falsified medicine is so toxic that it actually kills somebody that they can actually identify that direct link. So there is a, a substantial problem, and this is in all jurisdictions, that it's difficult to actually say that somebody suffered this particular injury unless you know the person consumed a product which you have proven to be falsified in a particular manner and that this affected it. As all of the victims in this case were outside of the Ireland, outside of the European Union, um, it was very difficult to actually ascertain. And we know in uh, two of the cases prosecuted, uh, two Middle Eastern countries, that the medicines were actually being sold into the public health system. The court said that, that had the accused contested the allegations, that it would have imposed a custodial sentence against both directors. The court also noted uh, that the investigation involved 13 countries in three continents, with witnesses from Asia, Middle East, uh, and EU and South America prepared to travel to Ireland to provide evidence before the court. And that, of course, is where the mitigating factors came in that they pleaded guilty and avoided this. In deciding on the sanction of imposing 1,000 euro on each of the directors, uh, the court noted that any fine imposed on the company was unlikely to be paid as it no longer traded and had no assets. Any larger fine against, fine against the chairman had to take into account that he still had an outstanding order by the commercial courts in Ireland from 2012, where he was ordered to pay over 30 million, 30 million euros uh, due to business dealings. So there was a difficulty there as well. So we can see the rationale of the court for doing this uh, when you might have expected that there might have been a much more serious uh, penalty. And uh, Hugo, when we discussed the, the sentencing, perhaps you could um, explain a little bit more to what extent this case can be considered a case of prosecution, organized crime, and how did, or if, if and if yes, how did um, the, the, the perception, or rather the, the, the fact that it was organized crime, uh, impact the, the sentencing and the verdict and the prosecution of this case? Yeah, the, the challenge for most jurisdictions when it comes to this type of crime is that it can actually be committed um, falling very much within the organized crime definition. The only difference is that they're not set up specifically for the purpose of committing a crime and making a profit from it. They're set up as a business. And then, of course, 
use that business for the purpose of um, committing crime. And you can, you can see in this particular case, uh, with the company set up for a legitimate purpose, that is to wholesale medicines and got their authorization to do so, they immediately set about their true strategy with uh, at least one other company for the purpose of uh, falsifying documents, falsifying uh, the source of medicines uh, for the purpose of making money. And they avoided uh, trading in Ireland uh, in the in this business. They avoided trading even within the EU, obviously with the expectation that the legislation wouldn't be strong enough to be able to catch them. But, of course, they made certain mistakes, and uh, this is what is uh, important to note always, that uh, these type of operations, their focus is to make money. And when they do that, they sometimes lose sight of the laws that they're actually breaking. And in this particular case, uh, the, to show how organized this was in deception, uh, one particular consignment that is meant for a Middle East country uh, was dispatched from Southeast Asia into uh, Turkey uh, and transshipped uh, on um, Turkish Airlines into Dublin, with the, uh, Ireland being the uh, country of destination and duty paid for the importation of the product. Well, when the product arrived at Dublin Airport, it was immediately taken off, relabeled by order of TAP, to show that this product was manufactured in a country of origin as Ireland, put back in the same plane, plane to Turkey, to be then sent off to a Middle Eastern country on the basis this was actually a product being sold and manufactured from Ireland. So you can see the deception of actually going around that route. Why didn't they just simply send it from the Asian country into the Middle Eastern country? They were trying to deceive everyone. So that, that kind of shows you how the organized aspect of it is. Is it organized crime? And that's the difficulty always for regulators and very often for many in law enforcement to actually understand why was the company set up and was it truly set up for an organized crime uh, function. It fits all the other elements of organized crime. When we look at uh, COVID-19 and the, the uh, crime that's happening there, it's exactly the same problem. You have the two strands. You have the pure organized crime. They're set up for no other reason than uh, for criminal purposes. And then you have what appear to be legitimate companies may very well be uh, transacting legitimate business, but also transact, in some cases, for an illegal purpose, using the skills, the knowledge, and sometimes the cover of their authorized standing to commit these crimes to the detriment of uh, patients, to the detriment of public health, and to the detriment of the economies of many countries. As we know, during COVID-19, countries spent large budgets on purchasing uh, protective equipment to prevent the disease spreading. They're now spending large budgets on purchasing of vaccines um, to prevent the, uh, the COVID-19 virus. So there's a lot of money to be made and there are a lot of people who want to make it. And we already know that in some countries they have detected falsified vaccines. So this is uh, uh, an issue.
Building on the last point you said, and in light of what we learned, how complex the investigations in such a case can be, are there any, let's say, investigative and prosecutorial capacities that you think countries should acquire in light of the ongoing pandemic that perhaps at the moment are still lacking? The, the immediate problem that comes out from a pandemic such as COVID-19 is that uh, you, it's a health crisis, number one, uh, that affects all of the economy, all of the people. And you're going to have a shift, a reallocation of resources, not just in the health field, the health product regulatory field, but also in policing and other, other uh, agencies to help cope with the pandemic. You have the other problem that many of these investigators and prosecutors will themselves come to the virus and will be put out of action. So there's a resource problem that is not that easily controllable. So what this actually means is that in many countries, you have a regulatory uh, system that at least regulates medicines to try and medical devices to help deal with this. Um, most of those who hopefully would have a falsified uh, medical product legislation to actually deal with crime. What if they don't? There is no likelihood that they will even have a criminal law to deal with falsified medicines. So there, well, they, if they rely on regulation to solve the problem, they fail to appreciate that regulation is in place to prevent bad product getting onto the market to consumers. The criminal law is very different. It is actually implemented for the purpose of criminalizing and penalizing those who actually commit the crime. If we don't have these laws, then there's not going to be uh, an investigation because there are no powers and there's certainly not going to be a prosecution. That leaves the field open for organized crime to step in to make uh, large profits. Uh, interagency cooperation is something that is very, very important and came out very much in this um, investigation as well as international cooperation. Interagency cooperation requires um, police, customs, regulators, laboratories, and many more to work together in an investigation. No one agency has all the powers. No one agency has all the resources. So pulling the multi-skilled, multidisciplinary approach together enables a very good investigation. But of course, with this type of crime, it's truly international. It's trafficking uh, uh, at its very best. And that requires international cooperation uh, to deal with it, an international uh, response. And that is the only way where you will actually get an effective system for investigation and evidence gathering, and for pro prosecutors to be able to agree among them where evidence might be collected, where it might actually be used in a prosecution, and for the transfer of um, that evidence in a, a legal manner so that it will be accepted by the court. So international cooperation is essential. National cooperation interagency is highly essential. It's not just desirable. It is essential. But if you don't have the laws in the first place, I'm afraid um, nothing is going to happen apart from organized crime uh, who will always capitalize on these opportunities. Hugo, thank you so much for, for your time. This has been extremely enlightening. Uh, we really appreciate it. You know, on that note of that call for international cooperation and interagency cooperation, I think it's a, it's a great 
it's a great time to to end this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, both Felix and Esther, and, and nice meeting you. Bye bye. Unfortunately, this is all we had time for today. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, which we jointly produced with Sherlock. Sherlock is the research tool when it comes to finding electronic resources and laws on organized crime. Make sure to check out the show notes of this episode where you can find more information and useful links. And also, if you haven't done so yet, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Stay healthy and stay tuned for the next episode.